Welcome back to Women of AB Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I am her co-host, Kathleen Smith, a.k.a. Kiki Planet. Those of us who have been paying close attention to the news over the last few weeks have seen uh, things that didn't shock us, things that really did shock us, and we felt like it was a very important conversation to be having uh, right now. And so specifically what I'm referring to, of course, is the, um, the verification of children that were buried on the residential school grounds in Kamloops, uh, also in Manitoba. And then we had a, we had a family and, and a multi-generational members of this family were run over by a vehicle as they were having an evening walk, a Muslim family in uh, London, Ontario. And so these things, unfortunately, are not new. Uh, It's something that also we've been dealing with, uh, you know, anti-Muslim sentiment, apparently, uh, in Edmonton, too often that we're hearing about, about attacks. And, and just to be clear, once is too often, right? Just yeah. to be clear, like one it, it, yeah, instance is and, one too many. And it's and it's not it's not even just yeah it's it's not just one. This is becoming a regular occurrence in the news out of Edmonton, and mm-hmm. so obviously there is a problem, and we wanted to have that discussion. So we've invited uh, Dr. Manasale from Concordia University, as well as. Uh, Dr. Christine Martineau from Concordia University as well. And welcome to you both. And just to make clear, Concordia University of Edmonton, because in other places, <laughs> I was cited as being from Concordia University and, I'm, and it makes me laugh because I'm like, they don't claim me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks, Deirdre. It's very good to be here with you both. Just before we get into our our conversation, uh, we were having a discussion before we began the actual recording of our podcast about language. Language is extremely important when we are discussing uh, Islamophobia, racism, and anti-Indigenous rhetoric and sentiment. The language is very important. And like a lot of people, Deirdre and I are still learning We're enthusiastic learners. We're happy to be learning. We're self-motivated learners. But sometimes even those of us who are enthusiastically learning to do better and to be better will use problematic language. Deirdre and I are both uh, very welcoming of being corrected on that language. That's the only way we get to learn. So we've not only invited our guests to contribute to that correction, if it should be required, but we welcome our audience too, as well. If you find anything we've said to be problematic, don't hesitate to tweet at either of us. When it comes to me, I've got skin like alligator handbag, so I'm not going to get offended by it. She (laughs) says that as she's just glowing beauty over there, right? (laughs) But we, we actually appreciate when uh, women of color 
come to us and explain to us why our language is hurtful and why it's problematic. So we invite that conversation and we invite the corrections as a learning opportunity. And now back to you, Deirdre. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's get right into this because um, Mana, when I first contacted you about having this conversation, you uh-huh. said that you and Christine have been have been having this conversation quite regularly. So, I mean, do you want to fill us in a little bit about about that? I think that for Christine and I, um, there was a very special connection when we first met. Uh, I don't know. I felt it. Christine's like, no, I didn't. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think that there's something to be said about, I, I recently saw this tweet that was like, there's no you can't call it post-traumatic because the trauma is ongoing. You know, mm. there's no such thing as post-traumatic for some of these experiences that many of us can uh, unfortunately have to continue living through. Um, and so slowly but surely, as, as Christine and I were talking, things would come up in the news or things would come up in class because we both teach about subjects that are very, very difficult, but also personal. It's not just, you know, the general knowledge, it also is very personally tied to who we are and, and our entire beings. And so as we discussed this over and over, we, we, you know, talk about how we need to really bring that forward. We really need to have people be aware that this is not just topics for, for so many of us. Mm-hmm. This is everyday lived experience and how do we bring that forward and and sometimes in academia where too many things can be abstracted away you know um it's just intellectualized when really no yes that's important to really think along with some of the theories and all of that good stuff but how do we bring it forward into lived experience and especially from an Alberta context where uh right now uh as we see well at least for um in my experience with Muslim, anti-Muslim sentiment and Islamophobia. And I know a lot of people have different takes on the term and I get it. Uh, I did write an article about what the meaning of Islamophobia really is because it's not just fear or, and or distrust. It's, it's bigger, it's been conceptualized as being bigger, but I get people's reticence to use the term. And, but right now in Alberta for Muslim women in hijab, in any form of hijab, or anybody who might look to be Muslim, you know, there's the idea of what a, what a Muslim looks like because of, of course skin tone and color and uh, the way that people dress traditionally or not. It's, it's been really difficult since that first um, incident in December of the two, the black Muslim mother and daughter outside of Southgate Mall and just the, the increased reporting and, 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 you know, very visible headlines in the news and, and the dis- discourses around it. Uh, many of us have experienced it for decades, really. But I think what's happening now is, yes, of course, there's increased instance, instances, which I think is very real. But also, you know, we're reporting it more because it needs to be um, brought to light. Um, so Christine and I, we've been having these conversations. Of course, I'm bringing my own experiences as a Muslim Palestinian woman and the mother of a child with a disability. And Christine brings her. So I'll let, I'll let Christine speak to that. You know, when you talk about terminology, I remember a few years ago, there was a session in Parliament where they were discussing use of the terms Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. 
when they passed some kind of M103, right? That those were terms and that they were going to use them. And I said to myself and many others at the time, what do you call hating Indigenous people? It's just being Canadian. I have to take a breath after that because that's unfortunately extremely true that it's become so ingrained into our national fabric that we don't even recognize it. We don't really acknowledge it. And the, the rare instances when we do acknowledge it, we speak, in, speak of it in historical terms. We speak of it in past tense when it's still happening right now. So I think that's, that's an incredibly important point that uh, the, the systemic racism in this nation when it comes to Indigenous persons has been going on for so long that we just accept it as part of who we are as a nation. Well, and it's the foundation of our nation. I mean, Canada wouldn't exist as a nation without that very racism and discrimination, without the dehumanization of Indigenous people. And so one of the things that I've wrestled with as a teacher, as a to-the-bone teacher before I was even certified, has been my mission to help people understand, for me first to understand, and then be able to help others understand, is what do you do with that? When you've assaulted an identity, let's start there. So when you take an identity of a group of human beings and completely tear it apart, um, make it that it's a taint on humanity and that it's an obstacle that as a member of that group, you can never overcome who you are. So how then... Do Canadians come to terms with their identity that is founded on that dismissal and dehumanization of another people? And so that's really been one of the biggest challenges for me in my work and in my life is to first come to terms with what are we actually dealing with here? And it was only through my PhD research that I truly got an understanding of how identity is at the core of this. And to then say, how do I help my Canadian students come to terms with this history? And the other term that I wanna just bring up right off the bat is this notion of cancel culture. If anybody's had their culture canceled, I'm sorry, it's me. I should speak for at least four indigenous languages. I should have grown up in culture, in community. And because of government policies from the beginning of Canada, I, my culture was completely canceled. So I grew up knowing what I was and why that made me less than, rather than knowing who I was and why that mattered in a good way. Christine, you brought up something that was uh, an aspect of a conversation I had online a a couple weeks ago that 
while there is perhaps growing acknowledgement of systemic racism against our First Nations and Indigenous persons in Canada, there's still there's still not a lot of understanding about the effect that had on First Nations peoples right from the start. And one of one of the things I've tried to focus on is that, as you said about cultures being cancelled, we not only took these children from their families against the will of their families, that needs to be known. The government of Canada and the Catholic Church kidnapped these children. And the entire objective behind doing that was to force them to assimilate. It was literally to uh, take their culture out of them. So not only has there been ongoing systemic and institutionalized racism against Canada's First Nations persons, we took away their history. We didn't just take away their land. We didn't just take away their children. We took away their history. We took away their languages. We took away uh, their religion, spirituality. We took away their homeland. And we took away who they were at their core in an attempt to make them uh, more like European colonizers. And I think that's something that even today, the vast majority of Canadians don't understand. They don't understand what a privilege it is for white people to even be able to trace their genealogy. And how so many First Nations and Indigenous persons in this country cannot even begin to do that. Because when you come from a tradition that is primarily oral in its history, and the government and the church tell you, you can't share those stories anymore. You can't share your language anymore. You've not just taken away the future for these people. You have taken away their entire history. And it's something we haven't discussed much at all. So when Christine is talking about cancel culture, I think that is such an important thing to drive home for our listeners is that these cultures were canceled, not individuals, entire cultures and histories were canceled. And it's brought us to where we are today. Mm -hmm. Can I also actually just um, say that just because we did talk about the language, just a note that um, when you say things like our Indigenous right. or Canada's First Nations, it's, the, it's a claim of ownership as well. So I just, you know, that's something that I learned over time as well. So just to, to make a note of that. Too. A habit I'm trying to break. I catch myself doing it every now and then, you know, but thank you for the reminder. I'm trying to break myself of that. And a good alternative is Indigenous peoples in Canada. Not of Canada, but in Canada, in because Canada. this country grew up around us and swallowed us. So we are here, but we are not of here as a nation. Right. And is there um, just just because this just came to me now, is Turtle Island specifically in North Canadian? America. It is North America. Yes. Ah, so okay. it, and it's and that's from the east. That's that comes from the Anishinaabe. Um, peoples that that story of Turtle Island 
And so it's okay. referenced to North America. I believe it's just North America. I don't know that it includes South America. I've only ever heard it in reference to North America. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. of that U.S.-Canadian divide thing and wondering whether or not yeah. that... No, but yeah. that's... that's there, there, that didn't exist before, right? Right, that's, that's <laughs> called a medicine line because ah. it's imaginary. It has power, but you can't see it. So that border uh-huh. is the medicine line between... It's, it's imaginary. It's made up. Create oh, and magic. I've not because heard of that power. before. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, well, better than the 49th. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I think, uh, I think one of the things that that you've brought up in this, um, you know, is is the education around, um, around our history, and and I say our history, uh, you know, as, as Canadians, but also uh, as white Canadians, right? Because, because this is something that I was absolutely not really aware of, as I was going through school and, and even um, conversations, like with, with the peers. Now, I also grew up in rural. So if you can imagine, you know, the, the peer language was, misogynistic it was prejudicial it was it was really really bad like when I think back to to what was okay what was sorry not okay what was normalized in in humor and stuff while I was growing up I just it it's it is kind of shocking to me because I'm like wow um but but this isn't something that I recognized at the time and now it is something that I happened to come across in my son's social studies was, was the language that was being used, the othering. And it was, it actually wasn't, no, I'm sorry. It was specific. The, 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 uh, the example that he had used that the teacher had used was about um, uh, the Spanish and the Aztecs and, and how, you know, the, the, the stronger culture the uh I it was it was it really stood out (laughs) when I read it and and I said I looked at it and I was and I was shocked and I felt I actually felt ill because I could I could see it right for the first time because because we know it exists in our education we know it exists in 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 everything around us really but it was the first time I saw it. And so how, how do you, how do you go about, and, and because you are both teachers, how do you go about bringing that up to your students that, that honestly, I mean, like I said, can be just like me, who had absolutely no idea that this, that this existed and in the way, like in the deeply ingrained way that it does and and the realization of that is uh it's it's very difficult so so how do you bring that about for your students for me it it was a process of coming well coming to deeply understand it myself first okay so you know i've been teaching about this particular topic by default not by choice uh-huh. just by default for starters let's start there this is my area right? It's been put on me. 
Um, I have a I have a a master's degree and a and a PhD in educational leadership, but nobody sees that. They see indigenous scholar. Period. This is what you should teach. This is where you belong. Right. And a part of that I take on as a responsibility. Well, if I don't do it, who will, for one thing? But it was a process of getting through the anger. Like, how do you teach about this? Well, you swear a lot in the beginning. Oh, you okay. swear a lot. <laughs> you cry. It helps. It helps. Yeah. Okay. It does. It does. Yeah. And, you know, and, and to watch students get angry and feel ripped off and like, why didn't I know this? Right. How did this happen? And why do I not know anything about it? And to really feel for them, like to, to see them start to feel ashamed of themselves and to say, listen, that's not the point of this. I get it's a byproduct of you coming to terms with this, but it's absolutely not the point. Um, and so helping people get past that shame and denial and, and but, but what about, but what about, you know, that, mm-hmm. but what about the fact that we brought you written language and we brought you technology and we, you know, we brought you capitalism and yeah. Um, and all of that white savior nonsense. (laughs) And and that, that whole conquering the Spanish and the Aztec conquering story. Yeah. How that has become the story of, of the Americas. And it's not our story in Canada. We were not conquered. We have treaty agreements, international Mm -hmm. treaty agreements. Mm -hmm. We were not conquered peoples. And in many cases, our land was taken unseated and unsurrendered. What wasn't taken by treaty. And so that's not our story, but we default back to that story or we default back to the the myth of the American pilgrim uh, experience of celebrating Thanksgiving and, you know, these hero indigenous people that saved them through that first winter. And and if you really dig into that history, you know, it's all BS, you know, um, just the notion, I I tell you, just in, in my own personal reading came across finally the origins, well, what someone is, uh, a researcher is putting forth as the origins of the term Indian giver. Oh. So uh, people came, said, please, we're dying here. We just landed on your shores and we're dying. Could we live on this little piece of land here and farm a little bit and survive? And the Indigenous people said, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, in in exchange for what we would have gotten from that land for ourselves, you'll pay us this much, right? And so that was a notion called tribute. You pay tribute. It's like a tax. It's like a rent. You're going to rent the land. And so when the Indigenous folks came back the next year and said, okay, it's time to renew our agreement Mm -hmm. and for you to pay tribute again. Oh! (sighs) Oh! Yeah, I know where you're going with that. They were trying to sell the land every year. You know, they were just being Indian givers. We paid you for it. Now you want to take it back? And so this, and then how that becomes a mythology of the origins of not just one nation, but all nations in the Americas, basically, you know, that becomes that story. And so we're supposed to be eternally grateful and, um, and, you know, it comes up every year at Thanksgiving. I think about Canadian Thanksgiving. What's the history of that? Why do we celebrate Thanksgiving in Canada? We don't have that mythology. 
that because the we love to co-opt American exceptionalism. <laughs> apparently, that's our favorite. Our favorite pastime in in Canada seems to be American wannabe, America right. light. There was a couple from Winnipeg a few years ago published a story in the newspaper, and they said uh, they call it your welcome day. <laughs> <laughs> took thanksgiving and they turned it on its head and they celebrate your welcome day and uh and so you know it's just it's those kinds that's the stuff that we have to break down is that everyday common sense canadian understanding of how things went down (laughs) air quotes flying across the screen right And that's the difficult work. It's like, you know, I tell you that and you'll go, oh my gosh, shocking. And then tomorrow it'll just be like, hmm, back to normal. Because it's not going to be in your face unless I'm in your face with that. Because Indigenous stories only get tagged on to the end of Muslim stories, Jewish stories, Black stories. So what's the, and, and I'm not, and I, I, I don't want to take away from any of the horror that's ever happened to any other peoples. That's not mm-hmm. the point. But, but estimates it, of 100 million Indigenous peoples were murdered through colonization of the Americas. How does that compare to 6 million through the Holocaust in terms of numbers, in terms of impact? But we don't call that a genocide. We have to put that in air quotes, or we have to say people I've call stopped. it a genocide. We can't say it is, just some people think it was. Yeah. And, oh, I and call so it a genocide, straight it's up. Breaking that down and understanding the facts. So it, it's unteaching first. And right. that's yes. so challenging about it. So, Mona, I have a question for you. How I, I, I'm a. I'm I'm one of those odd people who's both hopeful and cynical. <laughs> I, I vacillate between the two and struggle with which one I'm more inclined towards on a daily basis. I notice that whenever there is news about another attack on uh, Muslim women, when there's news surrounding the discovery of 215 children at a Kamloops residential school, there's an immediate sort of reaction online and there's the people who will try to rationalize both events. And then there's the other people who will focus solely just on those two events and it becomes their, their woke platform. If you will, we see a lot of what I call politically chic engagement. It's chic to talk about Palestine this week. It's chic to talk about uh, residential schools next week. It's chic to talk about Islamophobia the week after that. So my focus is how how do we amplify the voices that need to be heard, such as yourself, Christine's, uh, the voices of Indigenous persons, the voices of Palestinian persons, of Muslim women? How do we amplify their messages and their voices without co-opting? Because co-opting is becoming a serious problem in online activism. So give us some tips. How can we be supportive? 
Oh, wow. Thank you for that, because I have things to say. Okay. Um, <laughs> as always. <laughs> um, so I'm going to actually answer Deidre's question after, if that's okay as well, because I wanted to also uh, bring something else forward. But to answer your question, Kathleen, honest, honestly, that is such an important question because of the fact that, honestly, as I, I think I've, I tweeted this not too long ago, that I... Somebody like me who does not like social media generally, I am a very private person and I'm actually really, really um, just an introvert. So for me to be in these spaces means that I am fed up. I am fed up. People like me are fed up with being talked about. We are so fed up with being talked about and being talked over. So when I tweet something, for example, there is no need to quote tweet me with your hot take if you're not directly impacted. That's one way. That bugs me so much. Uh, because then you're just at that point, taking over what I'm trying to say and making it about you or your own take. If you're really out here to amplify and to listen and to learn and to be, you know, engaged as an as a, in solidarity, you retweet. So for example, um, when, you know, when news of the 215 children that absolutely broke everyone's hearts, like I wasn't shocked because I did read the TRC report, but it's still, it's just heartbreaking and traumatizing. And it's just, you know, how, 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 you know, it do not, do we allow, did people allow this to happen? And how right. can we, you know what I mean? Just the, the heartbreak of that. But I retweeted people from within the communities, you know, in Kamloops, in, you know, Indigenous peoples generally uh, online, because it's not, I didn't feel the need to speak over them with my own hot take, right? So that's um, one of the ways. Another way is, for, and this is actually going to be, uh, I'm merging this with your question, Deidre, because one of the ways that I approach teaching and I know Christine has this approach as well, is that what is our intention with this work? Always revisit what is your ultimate spirit and your intentions and what, what energy are you bringing, right? So when I begin teaching with my, with my students, and I use that word specifically, I'm not teaching at them, I'm teaching with them because I'm learning as, from them as well. And it's this, that's what teaching and learning is always. But my intention is really uh, this, Arabic word is called rahma, which is, it signifies way more than mercy because the direct translation is mercy. But rahim, rahma has the root word of rahim, which is womb, which means to nurture, to sustain, to, to be along, you know, to, to be almost as one, right? So that is my spirit that I try to bring. And I, I sometimes fail at bringing that spirit. I am just not in a place to engage. And Christine can be witness to this. I am not in a place to engage with that. But I try, right? So if I find myself online not having that spirit, I need to withdraw. I have to check myself and my intentions. You know, what is my intention here? What, why, even I retweeted, um, I was angry when I saw the, you know, the Dorchester Review tweets. Right. Because of with my anger and saying, you know, this and that. And then I had to, I actually ended up deleting it. Same. Because I, yeah, because I said, 
number one, it's, it needed to, for me, it needs to be out there that this is someone who's involved in the social studies, the social studies curriculum. But then I thought, you know, it's already been said, it's already out there, number one. Yeah. Number two, to keep retweeting, it's just bringing attention to this account. Exactly. So, for, so I just, I had to revisit my intention, you know, recenter myself, deleted it. You know, you can't really delete who were, you know, the harms that may have caused by other people seeing this. And, you know, so it's, it's I just as guilty. And that's just the, 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 you know, the nature of it. I hold myself accountable too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, what am, what is my intention here? What am I doing? What, what's the point of this? Mm-hmm. Because it's not just to, you know, be the loudest voice on there, or it's not just to be the most prominent whatever. For me, it's always going to be about education, and it's always going to be about healing, hopefully, and it's always going to be about making this world better and more just. So if what I'm engaging with is not doing that, then I don't want any part of it. I I love what you're saying about intention, because that's something I've really tried to focus on, especially over the last couple months. What is my objective? And it's something I've asked people privately, instead of getting into it publicly, what's your objective here? What's the good (laughs) that's coming from this? And especially when it when it comes to other white women, I, I feel and I'm guilty of it. I'm so guilty of it we can suck all the oxygen out of a room. And sometimes our intentions may be good, but those intentions are producing results that actually do the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. And white women, we need to stop sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Can I actually add to that, if that's okay? Because when I say intention, this is an Islamic concept that I'm bringing forward. It's not, it's the different, it's a little bit of a different understanding. So it's just, it's a spiritual niya, it's called. It's like, what am what energy, what spirit, what, what? So the intent, uh, but I'm not also saying that intention means everything. That's, I'm just drawing on my faith when I'm using that as a frame. Mm. Okay. So intention does not, um, does not trump impact. And I've been trying to use for, not use that Trump like that language, but <laughs> you know, that, here, yes. it used to be a word that was useful, and now it's just now it just brings all this extra negativity. Exactly. <laughs> but but it's impact. When people say it's impact, it matters. You know, you may have had a certain intention, but if somebody's telling you that if you've hurt them or you've caused them pain, you know, through the words, through the ways that you're engaging. Um, you know, that, especially when it's done to call, we've talked about this before we began, to call someone in, right? Like there's this language called people out for the cancel culture. And really, it's really about how, the ways we're engaging, the spirit we're bringing. So are we bringing this, this love, this justice, this idea of we're all in this, you know, in a way, hopefully, to make this world better. So if, if that's the energy that somebody is bringing, it's okay to be wrong. What's up, this obsession with always being right, the quote unquote, or never. Is there a problem with that? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. It's like, if we can acknowledge and admit, hey, I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. I am learning. Mm-hmm. I will be better. You know, it's just, and that's, uh, I'm going to answer the question. I'm sorry, I did take up a bit more time. No, no, no. But I just want to say that, Deidre, when you're talking about the othering in social studies, you are literally, I could rant about this for hours. Mm -hmm. Because how are we framing 
you know, different communities, different people, different um, ways of being in the world. Um, and so when you're framing a question in social studies education, like which is the stronger culture? What's better? Compare right. and contrast. This framing, you know, you can't compare and contrast different cultures. That's the, the epitome of, of othering. Mm -hmm. what, and so that's what another thing that I bring with, you know, pre-service teachers is to say how we are framing the questions matters, right? It matters. And so to check ourselves, if we are putting people or cultures or societies, you know, against each other and trying to always rank, we have this obsession with ranking. Mm -hmm. Really, everything just is different. And it's okay to honor the difference, right? On its own, without comparing. We don't need mm -hmm. to compare everything. And that's something that is very, you know, it is a very Eurocentric way of viewing the world, which is better, you know, when really it's just, you know, just being able to be without having to compare to another society or culture. And I'm going to say what, what Christine says, said as well, that I noticed 100%. I've become a Muslim expert in, in, you know, education. When really, yes, my, my doctoral research was a lot about the experiences of Canadian Muslim women and, their, and daughters and also girls and, you know, more recent refugees to Canada and mothers of disabled children. That's what my research is, definitely. But really, my degree was in curriculum studies. And, in, and my work is in social studies education. And so we become also siloed, right, into these, this is what you can talk about. Mm -hmm. When everything was happening with uh, the proposed program of studies in here in Alberta, and I call it proposed, I know it's the draft, but I just, I'm, I'm, I'm in denial. Um, <laughs> Girl, same. I'm with you, yeah. <laughs> when everything was happening it was more um it was interesting because what what voices were being amplified too about with that and whose voices and why um and you know what i mean who was invited to to talk about specific topics yeah. that was something else that really um, becomes really evident uh, in certain spaces so. and i wonder too if we're like uh, i i always say that i did not have a realistic um, understanding of women's experience <laughs> in in Alberta, in the workforce, in all of this thing, even though I've lived the experience, but I had um, and then this is where this is where the language comes into it. Jobs that I applied for as far as work that I was able to, um, managed to get and do and the way that I had had figured out what I was going to do you know I was going to avoid male dominated professions that was that was something that I was definitely going to do um, and I did I, I actually did do that um, but I didn't realize why I mean like mom told me about how it was difficult for her she because she was in uh, she was a heavy duty partsman. So she was you know, the only woman there who wasn't in accounting. And uh, I, I never wanted that. So I've almost been in denial about the experience around me. And all of a sudden, now that we talk about it at least once a week, if not more, I'm like, it's, it's, it's incredible how much I have missed. I guess. And, and so 
like, is there, is there something too with, like, I, I have this feeling <laughs> and this is why I bring this up in this conversation with, you know, now you're, you're, you're the indigenous scholar and now you're the Muslim scholar. Um, <laughs> am I going to become a feminist? Like I'm, I'm going to become the, the women's, you know, because, but that's where my experience is leading me. Right. And, and never thought that I would be there. Absolutely not. But I guess I'm better able to talk about it than, you know, my sons. I, I don't know. <laughs> but but like, does that is that something that just sort of happens or is it something that that you feel that you're that you're kind of pushed into because of also, you know, who you are, not necessarily where your studies and where your uh, research is taking you. I'd like to address that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> you know, I've always said I'm not the poster child for indigeneity. And I've, I've walked an interesting walk because of that. For it, it matters so much to other people what I look like. Mm-hmm that it began to matter to me in particular ways. And so for me, it was always seeking the evidence that I belonged first to my own family, because my older siblings are darker than me and look very different, you know, and when you come from a, a, a Métis, uh, like generations of Métis and mixed Indigenous and, and uh, European peoples, you're going to get some that come out looking like me. And so I always felt like that was not my place to embrace being the Indigenous expert, you know? So I really didn't feel qualified for that. And I still, honestly, you know, I tell my students I'm baby Cree, like, don't look to me for, you know, for deep wisdom from thousands of years of culture because I wasn't raised in that. I'm just learning it as a, as a mature adult. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the, the answer is it's not what I planned on being. It's not what I thought my role was be, would be, but it's the path that's been laid out before me. And it's the one I've been prepared to walk unbeknownst and undesired. <laughs> But that, but that also makes it sound like there's a little bit more to it where, you know, I can look back and say, the path was laid out for me too. I just went that way instead. Yeah, we all <laughs> I took the long way back way to it. <laughs> you know, my big rebellion was in high school. I was not going to take typing like my sisters did. I was not going to take typing. So I took hairdressing. Like <laughs> That was my big rebellion, you know? <laughs> decade later I might have taken auto mechanics honestly right. that's the way I wanted to go I wanted to go the way your mother went yeah and and but I never had sometime. the deep courage like with Mana being online and out there I I God bless you and thank you for your courage because I don't have that like I think if I put myself on in on Twitter it would kill me And I wouldn't be able to do this work in the classroom. 
with our teachers, with our future teachers. And for me, it's like, that's where I can have the most impact Mm -hmm. given the skills and the characteristics that I have. But do what you do well and leave the rest to others is I think really important for me. And so I'm really cautious about where I put my voice because I'm very vulnerable and I know that. And it's enough of a battle for me <clears throat> to address to to sort of leave my body every day to teach about this stuff because that's really what it feels like it's an out-of-body experience when you finally get to the place that you can do it well that's been the key for me is le- rising up above me and looking at it from up there and explaining it from up there so that I don't have to feel anything in that moment because what happens is my emotions block the learning when I get angry my students can't hear me anymore when I'm bawling they pity me I don't want them to pity me I don't want them to fear me I don't want them to hate me I want to call them in and that means removing me for that period of time And so that's what I really concentrate my reserves on. And I leave that other more public work to people who are really good at it, like Mana. Um, And I think that's part of the beauty of our relationship with each other is, you know, we're like the yin and yang of this in many ways, right? Like she balances me out and pulls me and I balance her and pull her. And and we survive that way. And, you know, um, the whole... I'm going to say it, Mana. We'll edit it out later if it's if you don't want to. But like, to, you know, for every other week, it's my my tra- hashtag. My trauma is trending. Yeah. You know, and and we just go back and forth, and it literally week by week over week over week, it'll be an Indigenous story, then it'll be a Muslim story, and then you know, and back and forth, and that's been our life for the last year at least. Yeah, is that. You know, it's um, near the the start of our our podcast episodes together, and I say together because Deirdre's been doing this for a long time, and I just called crawled on her little wagon, get her to pull me around with her. Uh, but right from the start of our conversations with women from a plethora of different um, cultural backgrounds, one of the things we've heard time and time again is. Uh, social media, especially Twitter, especially Twitter, is a very hard place for women. It's a hard place for all women, whether they're leftist, whether they're right wing, whether they're wealthy, it doesn't matter. Famous, infamous, Twitter is a hard place for women. But I think what white women need to understand is that as hard as it can be for us sometimes, it is a hundred times harder for women of color mm-hmm. because there's, there's more hurt to be thrown at them. Oh, there's yuck. more discrimination to be thrown at them. There's more dehumanization. There's more demeaning comments that can be thrown at them. And if, if white women truly want to be a support to all women of color, Perhaps we should reconsider our uh, willingness to co-opt 
from women of color to amplify our own position on social media and just amplify their voices, which goes back to what Mona was saying earlier about, you know, quote tweeting, which is something I have to tell you, it's something that that makes me completely wacky in my head when I see the same white women over and over again, quote tweeting. And then their tweet, their message is getting far more amplification and likes and retweets and replies than the original poster got. When the original poster is the voice we need to hear. Mm -hmm. It's the voice that we should be in conversation with. I also think it's important for everyone to know when it's time to step back from social media. We can do good work on social media through amplification, but entertaining the trolls, engaging with the people who aren't going to change their minds, who are there to deliberately hijack or uh, divert conversations, this is accomplishing nothing. And you may, at the end of the day, feel like you were the big white hero for the day who really owned those racists. You've changed nothing. You've filled the feed. You've sucked all the oxygen out of the air and maybe your clout score went up a little bit, but you've done absolutely nothing for the voices who need to be heard. So stop doing that shit. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. (laughs) Can we just bask in that? (laughs) Okay. Well, I want to talk about the, the mechanism behind that though. Why is the retweet celebrated and not the original because it's the legitimation until a white person legitimizes the message it's nothing we're still there you know honestly i think it's really important to understand what's actually going on when you're engaged not just oh it's not politically correct anymore because of course that's the go-to right what are you doing so here's your intention Here's your action. What is the outcome of that? Mm-hmm. So my sister actually, um, shout oh, out to all, to all of my sisters, because if I mention one, the other two are going to be Saha, Fatima, man, I love you. Okay. Fatima. <laughs> cracks us up. She cracks us up all the time. Love following her as well. Well, she uh, she actually did it. She she tweeted that literally. She said, "Okay, I see that a lot of people are saying I'll walk with you. I see that um, you know many people are putting these messages after the the London um, killings of the Absal Salman family and which left a nine year old orphan." Um, she said, "But what are you doing to make it safer for us? The structures need to change, right? It's not." You're, yes, it's 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 a beautiful sentiment that I'll walk with you. Don't don't be afraid. I'd walk with you, but we want a world where nobody has to walk with us. I'd like to walk alone. You know what I mean? I just yeah. want to be able to walk alone without fear. So if you can help us to get there, that'd be great. So yes, online online advocacy is important, but it's it's the tip. It's the tip. It's where, the bare you, minimum. Yeah. Who are you? Who are you going to be? You know, it's not the iceberg metaphor, right? Like, where's the deeper engagement? Where, you know, did you email your MP? Have you, you know, you know, been part of a community group that is advocating for change? What, where's the, where's the follow-up to that, right? 
So that's one of the things. And I just have to say specifically about social media. It is a hell site for, for women of color. And I'm sorry, I laughed because we talked about that dark humor. Like I, that's mm-hmm. how I survived. But what I want to say is that actually I'm there. Literally the only reason I'm there is for other Muslim women, specifically Muslim youth, is who I am there for. Yes, we need to amplify Muslim voices. Yes, our voices need to be out there. But I need for younger Muslim women specifically, in hijab and not in hijab, all the different kinds of Muslim women. I need for them to see in Alberta specifically, because there's Muslim women out there in all areas, you know, and I'm so proud of seeing so many of these really like amazing people who are doing amazing work all over the world. But I'm talking about in Alberta, in an Alberta context specifically, there wasn't very much representation. There wasn't people who were, you know, that I saw that were very, um, very active in these online spaces, specifically Twitter. So I felt that absence. And I thought, you know, I don't like to think of myself as an auntie. And now Iman is going to be laughing so much, her hijab off at this point, because people always <laughs> <laughs> I just love that you said laughing her hijab off. That's hilarious. <laughs> we always say that. I'm always <laughs> laughing her hijab off like that. <laughs> but she's, you know, like there's there's the need for for youth to be able to see women like us, you know, in these spaces, raising our voices. And yes, there's a lot of hate directed at us just for being who we are, just for having my profile picture there. No matter what I tweet, there's going to be people or just tweeting at me vile BS. So my block list is at this point a little over 600 people. Oh, wow. I've only been on Twitter for two years, like a little over two years. So that counts high though, is it not? Sorry? Your follower count is high? Well, yeah, I think that that's like- Because I've noticed that it's, that it's actually gotten worse for me too. Like I kept saying, like, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. But actually as my follower count has gone up, um, they're starting to come out of the woodwork now. So I think, I think that has something to do with it. Oh no, there's a woman who's getting some attention. Even when I just started, it started literally from the first month, like random accounts tweeting at me, random people um, replying to it. So that's why I've limited my tweets. Mm-hmm. So only the people I follow back and I typically follow most people back to be honest just because if I think that my story is important and needs to be heard I try to like as long as it looks like a legitimate account and all of that I typically follow people back but it's like so I limit it only to the people who I follow back because you get the random ones and it doesn't you know preclude people being able to quote tweet you it doesn't preclude people being able right. to ask you in other ways but at least it helps to limit and I, I blocked a whole bunch. So these are the ways that I've been able to kind of a little bit make my experience less disgusting on there. Yeah. But I mean, it is, you know, there, there are some very real concerns as well, because because you're so visible and so outspoken, there are people who are going to be, um, you know, targeting you in other ways, uh, online and, you know, in other spaces. And so... Mm-hmm. That's a risk that, you know, you, for me, I'm doing very consciously. I'm taking that very consciously and I'm being very, trying to be as careful as possible, but also understanding that you can't control other people's reactions to you. So um, I try to engage in, with a good spirit, good ways, but I mean, these online spaces, they do take a lot of energy. 
And I do have ha I have had to take steps back in a way often. It can become um, it can hurt your soul. And I don't say that lightly. That's not that's not something I'm I'm it's not rhetorical. It's not a rhetorical statement. It can damage your soul. It can leave you quite broken for a very long time. And I mean, that's just for me, a white suburban housewife. You know, if it's hard for me like that, I cannot begin to imagine how how difficult a place it is for women of color and uh, for for non-white activists. Because I know what I've faced and I've seen what women of color have faced online. It's horrific. And self-care is always important. Self-care is far more important for the health of our society than being the white woke hero will ever be. Because if you're not taking care of yourself, we can't take care of each other. We have to remember to do that at all stages. Yeah, and for me, um, taking care is in community too. And that's why COVID has been really hard. I know that um, like <laughs> when we are in the same uh, space physically, Christina would always be bringing the seven layer dip. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I, I make one of those myself. It's, it's a popular item. <laughs> so I just literally go to work because I'm like, well, Christina's going to be there today. There's going to be something. Okay, but is one of the layers flavored hummus? <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping I'm hoping it's that chocolate hummus that, you know, is in the Safeway bunker. Mm. Everybody takes it so far. Why does it have to go so far? Okay. <laughs> That's an abomination that should never have been invented. Yeah. Hummus is hummus. It just, just is. It just is. I, I've never seen a chocolate-covered chickpea in my life, so... Yeah, no. <laughs> what they were thinking, I don't know. Wait, Deirdre, we are well over an hour now. I so don't know. Did we... Did we did want we to... Did we yeah, pretty close. <laughs> That's always the question. <laughs> pretty close. Did did we want to close out with just uh, a, a final brief message from both of our guests? Yeah. Let's let's start with you, Christine. What what if there's if there's one message you really want our audience to hear right now and to possibly act upon? What would you like to leave them with? Educate yourself. You know, like, zip it, <laughs> educate yourself, and engage politically. Because we are supposed to be in a democracy, and a democracy means we hold up our government. Mm -hmm. And so, what are you holding up? What are you holding up? What are you lifting? And if it's not equity, and if it's not belonging for all, then you need to take a look at that. Mona, how about you? What would you like to leave our audience with? Well, after Christine, with her podcast voice and her uh, mic drop, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say it any better. I'm just going to leave it out with Christine. 